Part 2, The Legends, The Migrations of the Clans. The Four Migrations. Upon their emergence to this new fourth world, the people were told that they could not simply wander over it until they found a good place to settle down. Massaw, its guardian spirit, outlined the manner in which they were to make their migration, how they were to recognize the place they were to settle permanently, and the way they were to live when they got there. All this was symbolically written on the four sacred tablets given them. One of the tablets Massaw gave to the Fire Clan. It was very small. It was about four inches square, made of dark colored stone, and with a piece broken off from one corner. One side were marked several symbols, and on the other, the figure of a man without a head. Massaw was the deity of the Fire Clan. He gave them his tablet just before he turned his face from them, becoming invisible, so that they would have a record of his words. This is what he said, as marked on the tablet. After the Fire Clan had migrated to their permanent home, the time would come when they would be overcome by a strange people. They would be forced to develop their land and lives according to the dictates of a new ruler, or else they would be treated as criminals and punished. But they were not to resist. They were to wait for the person who would deliver them. This person was to be their lost white brother, Pahana, who would return to them with the missing corner piece of the tablet, deliver them from their persecutors, and work out with them a new and universal brotherhood of man. But, warned Masa, if their leader accepted any other religion, he must have assent, he must assent to having his head cut off. This would dispel the evil and save his people. Religion is a word that, were I speaking back and forth with Frank Waters, I would ask him to define the term. And I would imagine that he would say something like the system of beliefs that ties us to our supernatural heritage. So there are other ways of being human, and those other ways of being human to somebody like the Hopi who thought of being human as being in relationship with the gods or the creator, to them, any other way of living would be a change of religion. And, you know, that's the way that most tightly knit groups of people work today. It's, it's not their beliefs that they fight for. It's their way of living that they have always been told is the only acceptable way to live in the eyes of God, the various courtesies that we have, the, you know, etiquettes, proper manners, proper behavior, li in the Tao way of looking at things in 
northern Asia. The deity of the bear clan, Sokom Hona, he then gave three stone tablets to the bear clan, which was to be the leading clan on this fourth world. The first of these was small with a strange pattern scratched on one side. This, he said, was the land pattern around the permanent village where they would settle, showing the land holdings to be apportioned to all the clans supporting the religious ceremonies. On the other side of the tablet were marked two bear tracks, indicating that all the land beyond these religious land holdings was to be held in the custody of the bear clan, which was to reserve it for the animal kingdom upon which the people depended for food. The front of the larger second bear clan tablet was marked with a corn stalk in the center, around which were grouped several animals, all, around, all surrounded by two snakes and in each corner was a figure of a man with one arm outstretched. The two snakes symbolized the two rivers that would mark the boundary of the people's land. The outstretched arms of the four men signified that they were religious leaders holding and claiming the land for their people. No one should cross the boundary rivers without permission or destruction would come upon them. The back of the tablet showed a man who represented the leader or village chief, who was always to be of the bear clan. There was still a third tablet which Sokom Hona gave to the bear clan. On the front, six men, arms folded across belly and crotch, were enclosed within a border of two rectangles. The double-lined borders of the rectangles again symbolized the rivers enclosing the land, and the six men represented the leaders of the most important clans. Along the left side, whose edge was notched with tiny cuts, there were marked sun, moon, stars, and the Nakwich symbol of brotherhood. The back was covered with a maze of symbols, corn, cloud, sun, moon, star, water, snake, Nakwach, spirit of the creator, and bear tracks. There's currently some confusion about this figure on these tablets. Some informants say that the man is headless on the first tablet, prophesying, like the Fire Clan tablet, that a time would come when the leader would sacrifice himself by having his head cut off in order to save his people. The third Bear Clan tablet was shown to the writer, Frank Waters, in December of 1960 by John Lance's wife, Marna of the Parrot Clan in Arabi, who now has it in custody. The tablet was approximately 10 inches long, 8 inches wide, and an inch and a half thick. The stone resembled a dulled gray marble with intrusive blotches. It was very heavy, 
weighing about eight pounds. The markings on it were described. There was no means of estimating how old it or the markings were. All the tablets are said to have been in the possession of the Hopis, although some of them have disappeared and are not to be seen. They have figured importantly throughout the history of Hopi dealings with other tribes and the United States government and are of great significance at the present time. The use of them, the manner of the disappearance of some of them, and their probable location at presence are related in part four, chapter six. <coughs> the magic water jar. To each clan, Masa gave a small water jar. In the years to come, he said, they would be slowly migrating over the earth, and many times there would be no water where they settled. They were then to plant this jar in the ground, and thereafter, for as long as they remained there, the water would keep flowing out of this puipi, water-planted place. One certain person, went on Masa, must be ordained to carry the water jar for the whole clan. He must be a holy person whose life is perfect in every way. Four days before you are ready to move on, this water carrier must go without salt, and he must pray. Then he will carry the jar until you arrive at the next stop on your migration. For four days more, he will pray and fast and go without sleep before planting the jar again. Then again, the water will start flowing, and he may take up his normal life. Masa now instructed them what to do if the jar should be broken or should need to be replaced. You must go through a purification ceremony for four days. Then a woman who belongs to the same family as the water carrier must gather clay, shape, and fire a new jar. The water carrier or a young unmarried man of perfect character will be given the jar and an eagle feather to carry in his left hand and the wingtip of an eagle to carry in his right hand. He must go to the largest body of water, preferably the ocean, and he will go by that power which you still possess. At the ocean shore, he will kneel, place his prayer feather at the water's edge, and draw a line with cornmeal in the direction of his people. When the wave recedes and the first little bubbles appear in the sand where the pavakwia, the water dogs, are, he must dig them out with the wingtip of his eagle and put them in his jar. After this, he will put in the seaweed and uh, pidwasavi, water mucus or slimy stuff. A tiny seashell, some sand from the ocean floor, and the pachayampi, the water sifter, which skates on the surface. Finally, he will put in the jar some water from the ocean itself. Thus, when the jar is planted on a high mountain or in a sandy desert or near a village where there is no water, the materials of the jar 
will draw water from the distant ocean to supply you without end. The time will come when the villages you established during your migrations will fall into ruins. Other people will wonder why they were built in such inhospitable regions where there is no water for miles around. They will not know about this magic water jar because they will not know of the power and the prayer behind it. Now, before Massah turned his face from them and became invisible, he explained that every clan must make four directional migrations before they all arrived at their common permanent home. They must go to the ends of the land, west, south, east, and north, to the farthest paso, where the land meets the sea, in each direction. Only when the clans had completed these four movements, rounds, or steps of their migration could they come together again, forming the pattern of the Creator's universal plan. That is the way it was. Some clans started to the south, others to the north, retraced their routes to turn east and west, and then back again. All their routes formed a great cross, whose center, Tuwanasavi, the center of the universe, lay in what is now the Hopi country in the southwestern part of the United States, Arizona, and whose arms reached to the four-directional apostles. As they turned at each of these extremities, they formed of this great cross a swastika, either clockwise or counterclockwise, corresponding to the movement of the earth or of the sun. And then, when their migration slowed as they reached their permanent home, they formed spirals and circles, ever growing smaller. All these patterns formed by their four migrations are the basic motifs of the symbols still found today in their pottery and basketware and on their kachina rattles and altar boards. Often one clan would come upon the ruins of a village built by a preceding clan and find on the mound broken pieces of pottery circling to the right or to the left, indicating which way the clan had gone. Throughout the continent, these countless ruins and mounds covered with broken pottery, are still being discovered. They constitute what the people call now their title to the land. Everywhere, too, the clans carved on rocks their signatures, pictographs, and petroglyphs, which identified them, revealed what round of their migration they were on, and related the history of the village. Still, the migrations continued. Some clans forgot in time the commands of Massaw, settling in tropical climates where life was easy and developed beautiful cities of stone that were to decay and crumble into ruin. Other clans did not compete, complete all four of their migrations before settling in their permanent homes and hence lost their religious power and standing. Still others persisted, keeping open the doors on the top of their heads. These were the ones who finally realized the purpose 
and the meaning of their four migrations. For these migrations were themselves purification ceremonies, weeding out the generations all the latent evil brought from the previous third world. Man could not succumb to the comfort and luxury given him by the indulgent surroundings, for then he lost the need to rely upon the Creator. Nor should he be frightened even by the polar extremities of the earth, for there he learned that the power given him by the Creator will sustain him. So by traveling to all the farthest extremities of the land during their migration, these chosen people finally came to settle on the vast arid plateau that stretches between the Colorado and the Rio Grande rivers. Many other people today wonder why these people chose an area devoid of running water to irrigate their sparse crops. The Hopi know that they were led here so that they would have to depend upon the scanty rainfall which they must evoke with their power and prayer, and so preserve always that knowledge and faith in the supremacy of their Creator, who had brought them to this fourth world, after they had failed in three previous worlds. This, they say, is their supreme title to this land, with n which no secular power can refute.